We're continuing our study in Mark's gospel. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 3, and we're moving along uh, through this book. And um, we've been in it several weeks now and, and uh, coming, coming along in our study here. And we'll be picking up here where we left off last week um, in verse 7 and, and look at another couple of sections. Um, before we do that, let's pray. And um, then we'll dive into this and see what God has for us. Father, how grateful we are that you are not a God simply sitting out in heaven apart from and disinterested in your creation. But you have visited us in the person of Jesus Christ. And you continue to visit us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you are present in this room even now. And so we ask, Father, that you would enable us by the power of your Spirit to be attentive to your voice because you are moving among us. You are speaking. You desire a relationship with every single person here. And so we pray that you would help us to be attentive to your voice. Help us to receive what you have for us this evening. Holy Spirit, guide us as we look at your word. Make these words come alive for each of us. And then help us to respond to your invitation. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we, uh, just before we look at our passage for this evening, I was thinking we've been in the book of Mark now for several weeks, as I said, and sometimes it's good because we've been looking at each of these little sections, you know, a paragraph at a time or a scene at a time, a picture at a time. Sometimes it's good to take a step backward and, and take a, a, a bigger look at where we have been because especially with tonight's passage, we are going to be shifting a little bit. We're going to see a significant shift in Jesus' ministry, and we're going to begin to see a change in Mark's gospel. So let's take a step backward and see where have we been, what's been going on to this point, to give us a sense of perspective about where we are now and, and what's, going to, what's going to be ahead. You'll remember when I preached my first message here on this uh, from Mark's gospel, I mentioned that there are always three questions that we should be asking every time we look at any passage in the gospels. Whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, there's, there are always three questions that I ask myself, whether I'm looking at the book as a whole or if I'm looking at a particular verse or, or, a, or a paragraph. The first question I always ask myself is, what is this passage teaching me about Jesus? Because the gospel writers tell us this is about Jesus. We want you to know who he is. Um, we want you to know that he's the son of God. We want you to know who this person is. It is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they're teaching us something about Jesus. So what is this passage teaching me about the person of Jesus Christ? 
And that's always the first question I ask myself as I look at a passage or a paragraph or a, or a verse. It's teaching me something about Jesus. What is that? And the second question that we have to ask is this. Jesus is always teaching us about the kingdom. He preaches about the kingdom. He demonstrates the kingdom. He heals. He he forgives sins. He's always teaching something about the kingdom of God, either directly through his words or through his actions. Sometimes he teaches about the kingdom by what he doesn't say as much as by what he does say. But Jesus, the gospel writers tell us, is always teaching us something about the kingdom of God. Especially when we get into the parables, we will see this very, very clearly. Jesus begins the parables by saying, the kingdom is like a mustard seed, or the kingdom is like a treasure, or something like that. So he's always teaching us something about the kingdom. What do we learn about the kingdom in, in, in this passage or in this verse. And the third question we have to ask ourselves is this, who is a true follower of Jesus? Because we see the people's response to Jesus in all of these passages. There's always some kind of a response that is in some way implied or even stated. Sometimes it's very obvious. True followers of Jesus, he says, lay down their lives. They take up their cross and they follow me. There's a sense of, of action that is called for there. And we'll, we'll see again tonight the response of people as they, they interact with Jesus. Who is a true follower? We've already begun to see that as we've looked at Mark's gospel. As we see people becoming polarized, some people responding one way, other people responding another way. So three questions that we're, we have to think about as we come to uh, every passage in, in the Gospels. It's teaching us something about Jesus. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom, and people are responding in certain ways. Who is a true follower and who is not a true follower? So as we look at these first couple chapters in Mark, I think there are four things that I would emphasize that kind of come out of these three questions. The first thing that, we, that I would emphasize is that Jesus, that, that Mark is really, really um, underscoring Jesus' identity as the Son of God and as a man with authority. He is really underscoring Jesus' authority as the Son of God. We see that all through these chapters, he has authority to teach. He has authority that, is, that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. He has authority to heal. He has authority over, um, over the demons and, and spiritual authority. He has a d authority to cast out demons from people. He has authority to forgive sins. All these things, Mark keeps saying, this is Jesus' authority. He is, a, he is the Son of God, but he is a man with authority very different from any other kind of authority they've ever seen among the religious leaders. So Jesus' authority is being underscored again and again all throughout these chapters. Second thing that I would, that I think Mark is telling us, he, he is describing the people's response 
to Jesus' ministry. We see that the people are responding to him and they are, they are beginning to come in large crowds. They are being drawn into Jesus. They can't stay away from him. And so we see the people responding to, to his ministry. They are coming to, to, to have their, their sicknesses healed. They are coming to have demons cast out of them. They are coming for spiritual healing, emotional healing, relational healing, for sins to be forgiven, all these different things. People are responding. But then conversely, we see, fourth, thirdly, the deepening opposition of the religious leaders. And that's been growing again and again. It starts out very subtly, very, you know, just a little bit in, um, in chapter one, but it grows and it grows. And there is this increasing hostility of the religious leaders to, to, to Jesus' ministry to the point where chapter three, verse six, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So the religious leaders are now conspiring with the political leaders against Jesus. These are two groups of people who hate each other, but they have a common enemy. They hate each other, but they'll band together because they both hate Jesus. The religious leaders are being upset because Jesus doesn't look like the kind of Messiah that they were expecting. The political leaders are getting, getting a little bit um, off guard because they see Jesus as somebody who has this authority, and that makes them nervous as well. So the political leaders are nervous, and the religious leaders are nervous, and there is this deepening opposition to Jesus. The fourth thing that we would observe in these first chapters that as, as Mark is unfolding his gospel is that the kingdom is near and it is open to everybody. The kingdom is near, it is open to everybody. The, the kingdom of God has drawn near. In fact, Mark uses, the, the gospels use that language at times that the kingdom has come near to you. The, the kingdom has drawn close and and. And we see here that it is open to all. See, the religious leaders would keep certain people out of the kingdom. The sinners and tax collectors, you haven't earned your way into the kingdom, but Jesus is forgiving sins and welcoming them into the kingdom. And so the kingdom is near and it is open to all, especially to people who to this point have been excluded who have been told you can't have a relationship with God until you go and get your life cleaned up and then you can come into him. But, but we see that Jesus is welcoming those who have been unwelcome to this point. So the kingdom is drawing near and it is open to all these people. So that sets up where we are tonight in chapter 3, verse 7. We'll pick it up here. And we'll notice a beginning of a shift in Jesus' ministry beginning at this point. Chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around, 
and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, the son, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. A couple things we need to pay attention to here, beginning in verse 7. First, we notice, as I said, the beginning of a shift in Jesus' ministry. Up to this point, we have seen again and again how often Jesus' ministry takes place in the synagogue. The synagogue is the center of a lot of Jesus' ministry. We see even at the beginning of chapter 3, again, he entered the synagogue. We see that a number of times where Jesus' ministry begins in the religious institutions of the time. And that's the synagogue is the, is the center of that in these, in these, these small towns and villages around, around the area. And here... And this seems to be a regular practice for him to go into the synagogue to teach, to, to read the scriptures, to preach, and so on and so forth. But now he withdraws with his disciples to the sea. And from this point on in Mark, we do not see the synagogue taking that prominent a place. We don't see Jesus entering the synagogue to teach anymore no, he seems to be leaving the institution of religious Judaism and venturing out now in new ways among the people, more out in the villages, more out among the people, traveling around and going out to where the people are rather than going into the synagogue and doing a lot of his teaching and preaching there. And so this begins to, to, to represent a shift here in Jesus' ministry no longer do we see the synagogue as prominent, but he is out now among the people. The second thing that we will notice in verse 13 is that Jesus shares his ministry now with these 12 men. He doesn't just do it all himself, but he calls these men alongside him, and, and we see much more of a team ministry at this point. Um, and we'll see, we'll look at that part in a few minutes. And so this section marks a significant shift in Jesus' ministry. The emphasis isn't just on Jesus, but now it's Jesus and the Twelve, and no longer is he in synagogues and, and in among the religious institutions, but he's out, out among the people much more than he has been. 
In some ways, verses 7 through 12, the first paragraph of this, this particular section we're looking at, reads kind of like a summary of everything that we have seen before. It, it provides a bit of a wrapping up of the previous section, and then we begin to see what is coming ahead. I want to make three observations from this first part, verses 7 through 12. And the first is this that we have to see that Jesus' fame is spreading and the crowds are continuing to get bigger and bigger. Jesus' fame is spreading. And Mark says here that a great crowd followed Jesus. Not just a crowd, but a great crowd. You know, other places in Mark, when he talks about a great crowd, sometimes he actually numbers them like 5,000 people. This, in some ways, is, is like the first century version of something going viral. I've never quite understood how a video goes viral on the internet. Somebody posts something, and within two days, it's had two million hits. How does that even happen? Probably somebody can explain that to me. I don't get it. But this is kind of Mark's version of Jesus going viral because he's, he's telling us, here are where all these people are coming from. And if you look at it on a map, you have all these different places. Galilee would be the immediate location where they are. Judea and Jerusalem down to the south. We have Idumea, which is over to the east, kind of in the area of where Jordan is now. So it's, it's off to the east. Tyre and Sidon are up in the north up in the area of what's Lebanon these days. And in some ways, we could think of these as the four points of the compass, north, south, east, west. And what Mark is trying to emphasize here is that Jesus' fame is no longer right here in this area where he's from, around Capernaum, the north end of, of Galilee. No, it has spread far beyond that to other places that are now beyond even the country where they live, to other places as well, other countries as well. We have to assume, as Mark writes these things, that not only is word spreading out to these other geographical locations, it is spreading out to other peoples as well. That these crowds that are coming are both Jew and Gentile. Jewish people are coming to Jesus and being touched and healed and so on. But there is also, we have to assume, that it's going out beyond to other people groups and to non-Jews throughout the region, and they are coming as well. And I think that this underscores a message that is throughout the entire scripture. And I have to wonder, did the religious leaders of the time lose sight of a very basic biblical truth, and that is that God is a missionary God to all the peoples throughout all the earth. It wasn't intended to be kept with one group of people in one location for their, their good. It was intended from the very beginning, the message of the kingdom, the message of the gospel, the message of God's love and God's relationship with people was always intended to go throughout the entire earth to all peoples. 
One of my favorite passages that talks about this comes out of 1 Kings chapter 8 and Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple. And he says, and God, when people from other nations hear of you and they pray and they come and worship in this temple, hear their prayer too and receive them. We see in places like Exodus 19, where God is forming his people as a nation and giving them his law. And he says to them, you are a, you are a kingdom of priests. Meaning that you are to be this, this conduit from me to you to the entire world, to stand in the gap and to take this message to the entire world. God has always desired to have relationship with everybody. And I wonder if Jesus is restoring this vision of God's love and compassion for all people that has been lost by these religious leaders of the time. And so we see all these people from all these other nations coming to Jesus for healing, to be touched, and all these kinds of things. The second thing we see here, not only is Jesus the fully as the Son of God, ministering, healing, and caring for people, but I notice here Jesus as fully man. I think his humanity really comes out in these verses as well. How do I say that? Because he says to his disciples, verse 9, have a boat ready because of the crowd have a boat ready. Let's, let's have a plan to, to get away. And we see this as, a, as a, a, a regular pattern with Jesus before and after intense ministry. He would withdraw for rest, withdraw for, um, for times of retreat, for prayer, just to be alone, to be away. We'll see that especially when we get into to chapter 6. And Jesus says to the disciples, come away by yourselves. Let's get away from the crowds. Let's, let's spend some time in rest. I think we see something in Jesus that we need to pay attention to, that, that Jesus found it necessary at times to withdraw from the crowds, to pull away from, from the people. And obviously he ministers with intensity to these people, the, the huge crowds, but but Jesus always will focus on the individual within the crowd. He doesn't just look at 5,000 people. He, he focuses on the individual, and then he pulls away. And he asks the disciples, help me to, help me to have a plan to escape. We often see that he withdraws before and after intense seasons of ministry, as we said, and and. And here is one of, those, one of those situations. I think especially for those of us who, who work in ministry or who work with people in any capacity, this, this is an important example that we need to pay attention to. Burnout is common for people who work intensely with other people. And the effects of burnout can be devastated. And I have seen many people over the years who are driven more by the needs of people or by their own need of importance that they can't pull away. They cannot take a break. They simply can't rest. They can't stop. 
being a workaholic is not a godly characteristic because we don't see that in Jesus. Even God rested after six days of creating the world. I think that when I am tempted to be driven, and I do have that temptation on occasion, it is more often a sign of my neuroticism than it is of my holiness. Even God rested. No one was more aware of the needs of people and the urgency of the gospel message than Jesus was, and yet he even found that it was essential to get away for times of rest. Sabbath rest is important. And that's why God gives it to us. We need times of rest. And if Jesus needed times of rest, how much more do we? There's an old proverb that says, you will break the bow if you keep it always bent. You have to release the tension on a bow or you'll break the thing. Sometimes the holiest thing we can do is rest. Take a break. Pull away. The third thing I would say about this particular section, look at verse 10. Jesus had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. These are people who recognize their need and they see Jesus as the one who can meet their need. These are people who recognize that they are broken. These are people who recognize that they are needing healing. These are people who recognize that they need the touch of Jesus. As I've mentioned before, I've worked for years uh, in a medical project. One of the things that I learned in working with medical doctors is it is no blessing to be sick and have no symptoms. Symptoms are are a blessing. If you have if you have something wrong, it's good to feel pain because the pain alerts me to the fact that there's something that needs to be healed. There's something that needs to be repaired. Pain tells me I've got a cavity and I need to go to the dentist and have the thing fixed. Pain tells me I have a broken arm that needs to be set. I need to do something about this. As I've mentioned before, I used to work with leprosy-affected peoples. One of, the, one of the really difficult things about leprosy is it actually kills the nerve endings in your feet, in your fingers, so that you can actually do worse damage to yourself simply because you can't feel it. You can burn yourself, stick your hand in a fire, and not feel it. So pain becomes... As C.S. Lewis says, God's megaphone to get our attention that there's something going wrong here. Here are people who recognize their pain. They recognize their brokenness. And that is actually a blessing to realize I have a need because that is the very thing that drives me to Jesus because Jesus is the one who can meet that need. It is no blessing to live in this this place of complacency where I don't recognize or feel any pain, any 
any unsettling in myself because that is God's invitation to come to him and to find that, that place of, of, of healing in this. I, I always love this. As you know, my wife is a, a, a spiritual director, and as people come to her and, and talk about these things, you know, this is what's stirring up. I am experiencing this angst in my soul. And oftentimes, the very first question she will ask is this, and what is God's invitation in this? What is God inviting you to in the midst of this? And so here are people who recognize their need. This is, this is, these are people who know, I am hurt, I am broken, and Jesus is the one who can feel it. And so how does Jesus respond? I love that simple word in verse 10, touch. He doesn't just focus on the crowds. He, he, his gaze focuses on each person. Because when Jesus looks at masses, he sees individuals. He speaks to them and he touches them and he knows their needs and he knows the heart of every single person here. He knows their hidden fears. He knows their secret sins. He knows their heart's desire. He knows their, their places of hurt. And when he touches a life, it is the very hand of God reaching out and touching them. When he looks at the crowds, it is the eyes of God looking intently at, at these people, lovingly and compassionately, because these are people that he desires to know intimately and personally. Jesus doesn't look at people as projects to be worked on or, or problems to be solved. He, he sees them as men and women made in the image of God who can be healed and restored and touched and redeemed. So the crowd presses in, and Jesus touches them and restores them and heals them. Then in verse 13, it shifts. The focus goes from the crowd to this handful of men. He went up on the mountain, and he called to them those whom he desired, and they came to him. Luke gives us, in chapter 6, verse 12, a little more detail. He says that Jesus went to the mountain, and he spent the night in prayer before he, before he called these men. And so this appointment of the 12, we must understand, comes after a season of intense prayer as Jesus is, is, is wanting to discern who are these people that, that will be these 12, these 12 men that will come alongside? And so notice, first of all, he appointed 12 whom he also named as disciples so that they might be with him. It's an easy phrase to go right past, isn't it, and just move on so that they might be with him and then they would do all these things. No, I want to stop there because that's where discipleship begins so that they might be with him. I love that word with. It is really the very heart of discipleship to be 
with Jesus. We have to notice that that being with Jesus precedes anything and everything that that the disciples would ever accomplish in his name. It is, it is this reality of being with Jesus, I think, that defines the life of the true follower of Jesus. Who is a follower of Jesus? Those who spend time with Jesus. Those who are with him. This is where discipleship takes shape. If we would really learn to hear God's voice and to discern his way and to to feel his presence and his nearness, then we have to get away from the noise and away from the activity and away from the press of the crowds, as Jesus does here, and he, he urges his disciples to as well, away from the demands of the world, and we have to sit in solitude and in silence alone with Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple, to be with him to be still in the, in the presence of God. I often get asked by people advice about how to grow spiritually, and I think people are often looking for something, you know, very complex and, you know, this, this plan, that plan, whatever, you know, what book, what, what reading program or something like that. How do, how do I grow spiritually? How do I deepen in my walk with Jesus? And I, I often will turn that around, that question around, and I'll ask the person, Tell me about your time just sitting alone with Jesus. What is that like for you? What does that look like? Tell me about your time alone with God. It's, it's interesting to me how many people, even people in ministry, will, will often say, I don't, have, I don't have time. How do you find the time for something like that? And I think, well, that's the first priority. Everything else fits around that. That's the first priority, not the last priority. Because it's in those times alone with Jesus that I learned to turn the gaze of my soul toward the God who loves me. We come out of those times with a deeper understanding that true ministry is the overflow of what Jesus is teaching me personally about himself and about myself and what the Spirit is working in my soul You see, ministry can only be fruitful when it grows out of a direct and intimate encounter with Jesus. This is the place where my soul is transformed. This is the place where my heart and my motives are are purified. This is the place where I am prepared for the ministry that God has prepared for me. Our ministry has to be rooted in this deep, permanent, intimate relationship with Jesus, the incarnate word. And as I am transformed in my time alone with him, then I carry that experience into every other experience that I have with every other person. I think this is the beginning of discipleship, that they might be with him. And not just for people in ministry. This is for every single person. Because this is the kind of relationship that God desires with every person, not just with with ministers. We're not special. We're not a different category of people. No, this is for everybody. And then Jesus would send them out 
to preach and have authority to cast out demons. In other words, the very authority that Mark has been describing in his gospel, Jesus now passes along to these men. He passes that same authority to them, and they will do the very thing that we have already seen Jesus do. They will, they will preach about the kingdom. They will demonstrate God's authority over demons. They will heal other people. Jesus will now multiply his ministry out through these 12 men. And then on from them into the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. It's kind of like what you were saying out of Psalm, what was it, 148 that you read? 145. Yeah, that the older will, will, will tell of your deeds to the younger. We will pass that along, and that's the very thing that Jesus is emphasizing here. I'm passing it to you, you pass it to her, and then you pass it to her, and you just keep passing it along. And so he's commissioning them, but he's also giving us a pattern that we are to follow, to raise up other people and to, and to multiply this ministry out through these, these other people. Ultimately, through them to the ends of the earth. You know what's really remarkable about this list of 12 names? It's the fact that they are so unremarkable. This is the thing that I find so remarkable about these 12 people is that they are really quite ordinary people. They're very unremarkable people. You know, we have been trained, I think especially in this era in which we're living, to really focus on the celebrity and the people who are truly remarkable. And we think, oh, they would really be able to take this message someplace. That is not Jesus' strategy. He is not in any way impressed by people who are remarkable. In fact, he's quite unimpressed by remarkable people. He's very unimpressed with celebrities. They're the ones that he often had the most criticism for. These are very ordinary people just like you and me. I've thought as, I, as I've reflected on this passage, if Jesus were walking the earth today, what would those 12 look like? Who would they be? And I think we would be amazed at how absolutely ordinary they are. I think we might be a little shocked and think, why did he pick him? I mean, I could think of 20 other people who would be better than that person. No, they're absolutely ordinary people. Let's be honest, men and women. God's word is full of a lot of dodgy characters. David, Abraham, Moses, all of them have a past. They all have chapters in their biography that they would rather weren't there. They are not in any way religiously respectable. And we are, we are all trained to look for qualification and extraordinary ability, but all we're left with in this list is a bunch of ordinariness. Fishermen, tax collectors, and some of them we don't really even know much about, just guys out doing their thing. 
But the one common characteristic we see in each of them is their willingness and their availability. That's really the one common characteristic we see in them. Jesus offers an invitation and they respond. Up until now, they don't even know fully what they're signing up for, but they know that God has called them and so, and so they're, they respond. They're open to Jesus. You know, as I've reflected over the last several days about the people who have been most influential in my spiritual life and, and in my, my preparation for, for life and ministry and all of that, this, is a, this has been kind of driven home to me again that the people who have been most influential are not spectacular people. The first, the, the man who really, I think, um, who was an example to me of a pastor, um, I've known him all my life. He actually just passed away last year. You would not know his name. If I mentioned his name right now, it would mean absolutely nothing to any of you. In, but he, he faithfully pastored this, this church. He planted this church, faithfully pastored this church. And I remember my aunt telling me one time, I couldn't believe when he was selected as the pastor of that church because we all thought of him as truly the most ordinary and in some ways not a very qualified person. She said, I couldn't believe that they selected him to be the pastor of this, this, this newly planted church. And he faithfully planned, er, pastored that church for 40 years and probably sent more people around the world as missionaries, including his four daughters, than any pastor I have ever known. What did he do? He simply, faithfully loved people preach the word and that church not a huge church decent sized church has impacted every continent of the world because of the ministry of this faithful preacher he was simply faithful he answered God's invitation and he simply did what God told him to do completely unremarkable certainly not the best preacher I ever heard faithful, willing, obedient, available. Interestingly, the, the man who I probably learned more uh, from about teaching the word of God than any other person is a man who used to, he, he admitted, I was not wanted as a child. I was that child that came along later in life, and it was one of those unwanted pregnancies, and, and, um, and he knew it. He said, I wasn't wanted as a child, and I felt that. I grew up with the, the stigma of that uh, throughout my, my childhood and stuttered terribly. Couldn't even speak a sentence without, without stuttering. And had one high school teacher who kind of took pity on him more than anything else and kind of took him under his wing and worked with him, gave him a little confidence, worked with him as a, in speech therapy, so he got over his stuttering went on to be a preacher and a good preacher at that and taught me a lot about how to open the word and study the word and teach the word. But again, both of them, very ordinary people who were simply available, like these 12 men. So often we come to God with questions and say, okay, God, where do you want me to go? When, how, why? And, 
and we'll, we'll decide, we'll, we'll move when he, when he answers those questions. And we look for all the factors to line up, and then we'll move ahead. Remember years ago when I started seminary, as I sensed God was calling me into ministry, and people would ask me, so where's this heading? What are you going to do? What's your plan when you're done with school? And I'd say, I have no idea. I have no idea. I have no idea where this road is going, but I can tell you this, I'm on the right path. That's all I know. That that was the path that God set for me. And I'm convinced that this is the right path. Sue and I felt that same way when we, by faith, left China and we moved back to the States. From a human perspective, it made no sense. The ministry was thriving. It was growing. We were enjoying it. We loved it. We'd probably still be there today if God hadn't just moved us along. But when God says go, you go. You don't say no. You don't ask questions. You just simply go. And what we see in these men is this simple faith and obedience. And it was enough of for them to commit to a lifetime of service alongside Jesus. They simply respond to his invitation. This is the first quality of every disciple, to, to be with Jesus, to sit with Jesus, to listen to him, spend time with him, and to know him as a friend, and then just go where he takes you. Just go wherever he leads you. That's exactly what we see in these guys. And he will do the work of empowering and enabling us for the work that he has for us to do. I was thinking just a couple days ago, whatever happened to these 12 men? And it caused me to go back into my books and pull this, this old volume out. I don't know if you've ever looked at this. It's, it's, a, it's a compelling work, Christian Martyrs of the World. A classic work. You go through each of these people, 12 men, 10 of them gave their lives for the gospel. They took the gospel to Ethiopia, northern Africa, as far as far away as, as what we know as Britain today. They took the, the gospel as far east as India and Asia and they, they preached all over. They took it north. They took it south. They took it every direction. And 10 of the 12 lost their lives as a result of it. Obviously, Judas took his own life after betraying Jesus. And John was the only one who died a natural death. He was persecuted. He was exiled. But then he has that beautiful vision, Revelation that is left for us. Jesus asks the same of us today. This invitation to come to him, this invitation to simply follow him and to be with him. Let him touch you. Let him heal you. Let him transform you. Let him make you into the person he desires you to be, the person that you were created to be. He is still doing remarkable things through very ordinary people who are simply available to him. Let's pray.
have no idea what the particular invitation is that Jesus is extending to each of you, but I do know this because I know the work of the Holy Spirit that he is inviting every single person at this moment. If you would be open and willing to receive that invitation. For some, it's an invitation to simply come and to be healed, to be touched by the Master. To begin that journey of faith, of walking with him. To be open to him, to to know him. For some, it's an invitation to go deeper in your walk with him and to, to know him more than you ever have. For some, it's an invitation to step out in faith and to follow him into new places, into new territories, into new ministry, whatever that is, to take a risk. But I do know this, because I know the scriptures and because I know the spirit that he does invite each of us into this journey with him. So simply ask him, Jesus, what's your invitation to me? What are you inviting me into? What part of me do you do you want to touch, to heal, to restore, to redeem? What's the next step you're calling me to? Ask him. Father, we thank you for your word and how you call us and invite us through your Holy Spirit and through the experiences of these people. Help us to be attentive to your voice, to give you room, to open up those places. say yes to your invitation. Help us. By the power of your spirit, we ask these things in Jesus' name.